You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. What does a life look like when we choose to love God first? That was the question today's guest started to ask and used to reflect on her story, her love story, as she came to know and meet and marry her husband. What does life look like when we choose to love God first? That was the question that Dr. Carolyn Weber asked as she wrote Sex and the City of God, a memoir of love and longing. Dr. Weber is an award-winning author. She is the author of Surprised by Oxford, where she tells the story of her coming to faith in Christ. She holds an MPhil and a DPhil from Oxford University. She currently resides in Southern Ontario. She is a professor and an author. And today we are talking about Sex and the City of God, published by InterVarsity Press. In today's episode, you're going to hear a discussion of discipleship and sex and sexuality and reflecting on one's own story and preaching and testifying and memoir and all those things put together. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I trust you will enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary podcast, Carolyn. We are glad that you've joined us. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's a real delight to be with you. So I've just finished reading your book, Sex and the City of God. It's a memoir, a memoir of love and longing, where you tell the story of uh, coming to uh, meet and know and marry your husband and how God was intertwined in this whole uh, story and how it emerges <laughs> kind of out of your own uh, faith journey, which was which was uh, maybe mm-hmm. not traditional or not, or not what many of us are accustomed to hearing. So you have your own story of coming to faith as well that this story builds mm-hmm. on. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the story, mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure that we'll talk about it a little bit more, but I'd love to start just by asking you, why did you want to write a book about your own uh, love story? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I, you know, Aaron, I never would have anticipated writing a book with the word sex in the title. <laughs> I, I'm an English literature professor, you know, I'm, not, I'm by no means a sex per anything like that. Um, but I, uh, I, after I had written my first memoir, Surprised by Oxford, uh, there was a lot more demands from my readers and my, um, publisher, other events and that I was speaking at to talk perhaps more about what happens, especially in courtship and dating and being single or being married, um, especially because I had become a Christian as a graduate student. So a little bit later in life, so to speak. And so what happens to many people when you have a conversion, perhaps later in your life, or a way that the apple cart gets really toppled, you, you know, um, when you're starting to rethink your relationship to relationships. So it sort of grew out of that prompting, um, as well as really meditating on my marriage and thinking about what it is that I wanted to tell my children. And and the play with the title wasn't intended at all to be salacious or, you know, or out there. It was actually, if I'm honest, I, I would get, I teach at a secular campus and I've, and I've taught at many secular campuses and also Christian campuses. And I would get students asking me actually the same types of questions. And there was always this cultural notion of, you know, Sex in the City is such a predominant te- television show and it carries so many connotations. And I really wanted to think about, well, what would happen if we added, and God, <laughs> and God to anything, you know, but 
God's notion of city and God's notion of relationship and, and to think about love in a bigger way. Um, not to just be thinking about it in the, in the small way that culture presents it. And so it was being shaped by what I was talking about with students over the years, uh, women speaking events, um, my, and then thinking about my own children. You know, my oldest now is, is uh, a teenager. So, you know, thinking about the questions that they were starting to bring home from a larger culture as well. And uh, so it's a book that is, you know, is thinking about sex, but is actually thinking about it in a much larger way. That's really how I wanted to challenge readers to be thinking about the ordering of our loves. And that's why it was so influenced by Augustine in particular. I was I was reflecting on on um, how you wrote the book and and like you said so uh, the city of God and Saint Augustine's thought is is mm -hmm. replete throughout. There's there's a number of quotes that kind of introduce chapters and there's also there's a number of ways that Saint Augustine's phrasing or a way of articulating things starts to to set your own thinking mm -hmm. on your own story and some of the memories that that you share with us as you, as you weave them together. And I was thinking about how we we have just grown accustomed to this divide of, of secular and sacred, right? Secular and sacred. And so much that yes. philosopher Charles Taylor says that, that we're all secularists, right? There, this is just the air that we're breathing. Can't get away from it. And, and I was wondering about, and I don't, I don't uh, like coining, coining new words, but maybe the word sexular, S-E-X-U-L-A-R, starts to get at some of the, the split in our lives that mm. we're tempted to make, that, that we split sex to be something totally different mm. from the rest of our lives. Mm. And so there's a way that we live our lives that the rest, that it is, it is mm -hmm. and, and has important things, but then there's just sex, right? And, and why, why do we have to have so many rules or ways mm -hmm. of thinking about that? And so as I was reading your book, I was, I was reading that, how are these things put together? How do, how do we think about our lives as an integrated whole, including uh, our lives uh, in terms of sexuality? And, and love story, how do we think about putting these together as a whole so that God is, is shot through the whole thing? Uh, so maybe we'll come, we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. I wanna, and I wanna come back to that, but that was one of the things that your book helped me to do is like, okay, how do we, how do we integrate these things through the, the, in the mind of you know, the, the church father, St. Augustine, who in many ways is kind of like the final church father and is leading into medieval thinkers, uh, I had a, just was talking with, talking with my friend, John and, and using his phrasing there. Um, but but Saint Augustine in this kind of in this in this worldview that he has, is helping you to do that in a way that I think is faithful, um, in a postmodern world where you would have like a, sec, a sacred and a sexier right. We could be tempted to pull those aside. All right. Yeah. So we'll come, yeah, exactly. I'll come, come back to that in a second. But that was a thought that came to mind that I wanted to kind of get it out there. Um, but I want to put it back to you. So you've written this book sure. as, a, as a memoir. Why did you choose to write it as a memoir? Well, I, again, as I, I'm trained as an academic, so memoir wasn't something that I ever thought of writing initially, you know, and, and it grew out of when I first ended up writing my conversion narrative. Um, but I think because I really believe in the power of story and I, I felt particularly with this sort of topic, I, I didn't want it to be heavy handed. I wanted it to be more of an exploration. Mm. Um, I think people really struggle with thinking about how faith is relevant to their lives, Erin. Um, and as you were saying, how is it relevant to all corners of our lives, you know, not just on, on Sundays? And for non-believers, right, how can they be led to think about how faith might be relevant to them? And so uh, I, was, I was drawn to share, sharing and thinking about our own stories, thinking about um, 
you know, how do we glean wisdom from information? I think our culture gives our kids so much information, so many facts, um, or, or not, you know, and but very little wisdom, if any at all. Um, and so, you know, my, you know, my kids can come home from a public school with condoms, for instance, um, and be told to have safe sex, but they're not talked to about anything having to do with relationship or their emotions or protecting their heart. And I'm not even talking as um, about, you know, purity or any of those issues at this point, I'm, I'm just talking about giving them basic information, even from a religious or spiritual point of view, so they can make informed decisions and they can choose uh, they can choose um, viable options. Uh, and it's almost as though our society is afraid of, of giving people that kind of freedom to make those sort of decisions. Um, and so I was really trying to think how uh, memoir, I think, is really powerful because the Bible consists of memoir. Um, I mean, it's really at the root of testimony. I, th I believe memoir, uh, it, when done carefully and selectively and prayerfully, can really bear testimony to God's goodness and work in our lives. And, and so that's why I think it's a very powerful way of um, encouraging people to think about the relevance of reverence um, without being heavy handed. One of the ways I, I, or one of the images that, that came to mind as I was reading your story is you would tell these different episodes and it was like you had gone into the episode and rather simply than just recording the facts of the episode, you, you've kind of gone into the episode and remembered it. And it's like you, you looked all the way around it and tried to look into the corners mm -hmm. and look up and look down and look around and, and, and try and see the whole thing, not just sequentially, but then as a whole, right? As you're, as you're looking at the whole memory and how that started to draw out the richness of it, that you're able to see these little corners where God was at work. And, and there's a couple of stories where it's like, well, boy, if that's not Providence, I don't know what is, right? If, I, if that's not God, right. remarkable. Right, absolutely. But then there's other times that you're able to see God just in these really small things that are drawing, drawing up God's activity that without pausing to reflect, it would be your life, it would be your story, it would be your memory, but it would be something that you might miss. And so that was one of the things that I thought, boy, that's, there's a lot of insight in this mode of, of remembering and trying to, to look in all the different mm -hmm. corners and, and wrinkles of the, of the memory that you're telling. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the word remember itself is really powerful. You're putting things back together. You're putting parts back together. And memory is one of the most amazing things we have. I mean, it reminds me of the mystery of God and the power of God. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis said himself, we often don't see the hand of God until we look back at our lives and then we can see the plot of his goodness. And uh, there is a power to retrospect. Uh, when we're in the moment with something in the present of something, sometimes all we can do is barely just try to survive. Mm. But when we look back, you know, I think there's a reason why Jesus has, I mean, obviously many of his refrains are powerful for a reason. One of his refrains, you know, do not be afraid. But another really constant refrain is to remember, you know, remember me, do this in remembrance of me, um, going back and looking then. And so I think memoir can differ, you know, from, from just autobiography, because you're going back and Yes, we're fallible. Yes, our memories are not perfect, but we're trying to think about what we're also learning from going back and looking at that sort of through the God lens in a way that we put, couldn't often at the time, of course, because we're so busy kind of living it and we're these finite creatures. Um, and, and ironically, remembering reminds us that we're eternal. And again, I really agree with Lewis when he's quoting Samuel Johnson and he says, you know, people would much rather be reminded than instructed. 
Mm. I think that's the power that's behind something like memoir as opposed to didactic teaching, which has its place, but again, it's informational. It's not wisdom-based. So, you know, you look at the Psalms, you look at the Proverbs, right? It comes from deep experiential wisdom and the book and the wisdom books. They're, they're wise for a reason. And because there's this looking back and understanding the right application of information, as well as remembering what you learned and going back and thinking about the whole picture in a different way. Mm. Um, and uh, so I'm, I mean, I think any three in front of it is always made better, <laughs> but there's power in, in revisiting um, something. I've got a, I've got a question that I want to lead into, and I'll use one thing that you just said to lead into it. It's a bit of a long, long question. So, so bear with me as I try to set it up. That's fine. Uh, you, you mentioned about, um, <laughs> you're in Southern Ontario. I grew up in, I grew up in the Ottawa Valley. And so um, just a couple of years ago, I was um, in, in the, I was pastoring a church in Ontario and the, the government of Ontario was coming out with new sex education curriculum. And so you right. lead to that in the, in the book. And something you just said is you wanted to teach your children so that they could make a choice. And, and so often mm -hmm. that kind of just that even repositions the concept of choice, because so often we think, well, if I teach or train, I'm going to inhibit choice, right? If I teach or train, mm -hmm. I'm, you, mm -hmm. I'm going to inhibit choice. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of have to take this hands off, but you said, I want to teach so that they can make a choice. And I think that articulates how we are in the midst of culture that, overtly and covertly intentionally and then just by osmosis is already forming every person who's in it and it forms them with a kind of sexual ethic or a way of coming at relationships in which sex is part of, of uh, some relationships and how one looks mm -hmm. at that is already going to be formed so so I like how you said that you want to teach and train and inform so that they can make a choice um, yeah. So that's, that's the introduction. You also mentioned how you came to faith a little bit later in life as a, as a graduate student. Uh, so I grew up in a mm -hmm. Christian home and a lot of our, our teaching, we didn't talk, it wasn't like we talked about sex all the time. It wasn't a major part of our, our faith curriculum, I'd say in, in our home, but it was something <laughs> that was just, you couldn't get away from it, right? Like, you know, my, my right, I, right. I was the third of three boys and like, we're, this is just part of raising boys. Okay. So, and we grew up in a farming community and you know what, when you grow up around animals, then this is, this is going to be a subject that comes up every, every once in a while. So, uh, they call was, it birds and the bees for a reason. That's, that's exactly <laughs> All right. So, so our, our stories are maybe a little bit different with that in mind, right? The, the, sure. the, uh, discipleship that mm -hmm. I had in a Christian home was different from yours, which wasn't a Christian home. And as you said, coming to faith later mm -hmm. in life. Now, one of the, the, I'd say actions that some of, uh, my contemporaries might have is what I like to kind of say is like a critique. And for some, it might even be a backlash, right? It, it might be a, it might be a thoughtful critique, or it might be like a really critical uh, action against what's been sometimes called purity culture. So uh, when I use this mm -hmm. term, um, I use it to describe something that uh, was part of a curriculum in churches that was often taught to the younger generations to stay away from premarital sex. They often had things like bracelets or purity rings or ceremonies. It was, it could be quite involved whenever they were trying to do mm. sexual, uh, discipleship, discipleship in the area of sex for their, their teens and, and young adults. Uh, no doubt there was some mm. stories and examples that would reveal some incorrect and misguided teaching. I absolutely recognize that, but I expect that there were also some helpful elements that would have been appropriate and, and helpful. 
one of the things that you write in the book, uh, you say, we don't set examples for uh, our culture's younger generation, their bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. You write, growing up, I wish I had been given the knowledge of God's great love for me. Um, this could have been dignifying, you say. Um, this struck me as having something to say to the ongoing conversation around purity culture, um, something that might help the church not to sway too far from one side to the other, right? If they're kind of hearing some of your own testimony in this. I'd love for you to share some thoughts with us. From your own story, uh, what would you have to say to this ongoing conversation that some are having in the church around purity culture and how we do discipleship in this sexual age? Mm, it's such an important question because you're right. There are such extremes. Um, and I'm always wary of the veneer of culturalese around everything, especially Christianity. <laughs> um, and I think, again, that's why I was really drawn to Augustine with this topic, which really might sound like disparate connections. Like it might be a, a really, you know, really bizarre sort of um comparison or, or person to go to. But I, again, I was really drawn to the notion of the two cities, you know, the city of God and the city of men, and which citizenship do you have? And which city do you belong to? And as Augustine says, you know, they're called to live in peace, but they have very different ends. And that theological difference makes all the difference, you know, where, uh, which, which city you belong to. And, um, and so they can live peaceably, they're called to live peace in peace, but, uh, you know, when you have made a choice as to which city you belong in, the, the rules of that citizenship are different um, for good reason. And also our understanding of relationship is much more powerful and different um, that we see traced throughout the entire Bible. We are our brother's keeper. Um, our decisions not only affect our own bodies as temples of God, we don't own our own bodies. And I think we, for, we tend to forget that. We think we own everything, um, you know, money, blessings, our own bodies are not ours. Uh, again, that's a really alien concept, quite literally alien of another world, you know, uh, to someone who doesn't um, live in the city of God. Uh, but if you live in the city of God, you have a whole other different sort of citizenship. Um, and so, yes, your own relationship to your own body, uh, your own relationship to your own mind and heart, you know, I think that there's a tendency I think that the purity movement, as you said, very astutely has some great qualities and, and some good points of remembering and also has some very dangerous slippery slopes. And I think the element of fear and shame, even around um, purity can be a very dangerous way of um, getting in the way of actually righteousness, right? Wanting to act and, and make decisions out of love for God, not out of fear. Hmm. Um, out of the fear that the fear of God, which is, you know, wisdom, the root of wisdom, not out of the fear of God, because you're going to be, you know, disowned by your parents. So, um, again, cultivating what Augustine said is that, you know, going back to that first commandment, loving God, and then ordering our loves based on that love for God. And therefore, remembering too, that in that relationship as a Christian, we have immense responsibility, our bar is different, it's set higher, it's set differently. And so it's not just only my own relationship to my body that has been bought for me with Christ's blood. And therefore I have a full and free identity in Christ first. And my love is there first. Um, and things are meant, the blueprint is meant for me to order my loves according to that um, of redemption, but also that therefore I have a greater responsibility to others 
So it's not just me, you know, if I'm, and I think I referred to that, that was one, one of the eye openers when I first started dating was thinking, oh, you know, flirting with someone or, you know, um, how many students I get would come to me and they'll have a one night stand and no matter what, they always say how empty they feel. Mm. I've never had anyone, I've never had, you know, over almost 30 years of teaching, I've never had a student come in my office and say, wow, I had a one night stand and I feel great. Mm. Um, whether they are Christians or not. You know, we are beings that are wired um, for longing. I agree with Augustine that we, you know, we have this homesickness. We have this longing for God, this restlessness until we find our home in him. And we're everything except God is an addiction or a way to try and fill that void. And, and sex is one that gets a lot of attention, but I think it's because it's also so intimate and, uh, and God wants that intimacy with us as well. But we are forgetting that our decisions impact other people's relationships with God as well and other people's relationships with their bodies. Um, and, you know, that those decisions have other, in, other uh, consequences. And are we actually really thinking about if we're making a decision on how best to love? And again, this isn't to sound heavy handed or to sound holier than thou or, or to be sort of purist out of fear. But if we're really thinking about who we are and God, and then we're treating others with that dignity as well, even in moments of weakness, thinking about our, the impact of our, of our decisions on someone else is, is integral to our faith. Um, that's taught all the way through. That's the story, that's the Adam and Eve story, right? In which actually the act of obedience is one of not acting. Sometimes wisdom entails not acting um, as well as acting. And it also entails taking responsibility for the other person who is standing there with you. Mm. Um, I won't, I won't give away the story, but there is one memory that you, you <laughs> that, that, that hit you, right. Is like, how do I, how do you live a life of faithfulness, not just for yourself and your own relationship to God, but also treating mm -hmm. the other person who is not, does not have the same standards that you've been called to because they're not a person of faith. How do you treat them as a, as a person so that you're not inhibiting their faith, right? Like that sense of obligation right. to the other uh, is such a switch from um, the, the notion of sex is something between two consenting adults to something of um, what does, what does the act, um, how, do, what responsibility do I have to the other person as a sexual being, which human beings are sexual beings, right? Mm -hmm. is, is exactly. What responsibility do I have right. to them? And what is a proper act of love to them? Um, based on my citizenship in the city of God, based on my, my allegiance to God and my, mm -hmm. my being owned by God. Mm hmm mm hmm and being in the choosing to live in the eternal city, not the temporal. Yeah. Um, and there's and it's all the difference in the world. Uh, it's a it's a line in the sand, and it makes all the difference in the world. It's um, what's behind you know being equally yoked. It's what's behind treating someone else as a child of God. Um, and and actually, it doesn't matter what your earthly uh, relation status is, relationship status is. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. Actually. If you're a believer, uh, you are married to Christ first. Um, your decisions, all your decisions go to him first. Um, and, uh, and so that's not to say there aren't different struggles and, and different questions, but that love of God 
first and that relationship with him first doesn't matter if you're married or you know or single you can be just as lonely in a marriage or have just as many questions in a marriage and you can be just as much struggling with um you know with actions if you're single as well so mm. that basis that common denomination of being married first in Christ is really foundational um regardless of our earthly status i want to shift to another question because it's it's uh kind of the other end of things. So if we, um, if we think about uh, one of the, one of the things that St. Augustine says is that the city of man needs uh, generation, right? Procreation for there to be uh, members, but God's city needs mm -hmm. regeneration. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and sex can be one of those yeah. things that, that broaches, right? Sex leads to procreation. Sex is, is the, the act of generation or, or, or is the act that's used to generate uh, new human, new human beings. Um, at the same time, uh, it's a way to express faithfulness or to live to live according to the the new self, the re, the regenerated self. And I think that might be a way to think about how do we disciple teens and young adults is is with the category of faithfulness and how do we help them to be faithful people rather than purity being something that is that is saved. Uh, but uh, right. instead of think about the character is, is how do I, how do I become a faithful person in this aspect of my life and and allowing mm -hmm. that that faithful character to be something that then extends through my whole life and all my relationships and, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. what leads to the next question I have is kind of if that's the the start of it uh, the end of of it the end of life is is death um, and you write this why is it we never think of the far-reaching ramifications of sex. Why is it that we do not think of the fact that whom we share our living bed with most likely determines who will be at our deathbed? Um, end quote. This is part of a, a theme that sex is bound with our desires to be chosen, known, and loved, right? Not just the moment, but that to be extended out through our, our lives, right? The whole, the, the whole of our soul, the whole extension through time desires to be uh, chosen, known, and and loved. Uh, I mentioned that you're based in Canada now, and whenever I was uh, most recently living in Canada, there's there's debate and there's discussion and there is pending legislation that's now been passed in terms of uh, MAID or medical assistance in death. Um, and so mm -hmm. it's a hot topic, still a hot topic there. A friend of mine is an ethicist in Canada, mm -hmm. and he's still sharing articles and helping to inform the public about this about this subject and some of the the implications. So with that kind of mm -hmm. background, right, the the connection of, of sex and death, and then your context in Canada, that's kind of where what leads to this next question. Uh, do you see a connection mm. between desires for anonymous sex or less strings attached sex and the growing interest in medically induced death in Canada? Yes, I, I thought, I think that's a really um, powerful question. I had never thought about that connection. And yet there's a long history in which sex and death are intertwined. <laughs> Sex and spirit, spirituality and death are 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 definitely intertwined. Um, and I I think I have a hard time ever judging. I, I've really learned a lot in my own heart, Erin, um, to pay attention more to the plank in my own eye. And a few years ago, I went through a very very serious illness myself, uh, and uh, that actually has a high suicide rate because of the pain and the treatment involved. And, um, and, you know, 
I began to see things from a different side. It's very easy to sort of dismiss someone's choices when you're not throwing up every morning, <laughs> you know, and you feel well. And, um, and I think that the commandment to not kill is, of course, incredibly important, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments, but we're also commanded not to judge. And I think as Christians, it's hard. We, and this is, again, back to Augustine. There, there are these binaries and these truths, and yet we're also called to mitigate things with grace. And some things are also not um, really not to us, right? We have to hand them over to God. I think the equation that's missing both in sex and in death as extremes, because of course, what is there besides our birth and our death, um, you know, and that the Lord knew us in, in our mother's womb and knit us together in that darkness, and then also gives us the white stone of acquittal and revelation with our name on it that only he and I will know. You know, there is this long relationship with him um, mm -hmm. that includes our death is in our culture, we don't, uh, we have increasingly less and less relationship. And that's why I was really interested in looking at the relationship to relationship. Um, I think that sometimes, and not in all cases, of course, but sometimes um, a medically induced death or wanting suicide is often related to feeling incredibly alone. Mm. Um, not having someone carry that with you. Um, I, you know, I have a few friends that work in thanatology, you know, the, the, Su supplying support in in death in dying patients and and you know and thanatos and and sympathy and empathy and that their death is a part of life and um that's not to sugarcoat the process but the fact that um you know feeling um cutting out the meaning of our dignity in god and our responsibility and relationship with others can make us sort of there's this coldness in our hearts. There's this cutoff that we have that allows us then to think about it, try to put it somewhere off as though it's separate, um, as opposed to really thinking about it in relationship, thinking about your life in relationship, in relationship with God, thinking about your life in relationship with others. Um, I see this, for example, caring for my elderly mom now. She lives with us and I'm her primary caregiver, especially during COVID and she has some dementia. And, um, and quite a bit of fear about her life and her frailty. And simply being in relationship um, with, with each other, but especially in suffering. I think we have in our culture such a tendency to sanitize. I mean, of course we do with COVID, but we sanitize our hearts too, you know, and we're, and that's kind of a, again, the, ba the bad backside of fear, uh, as opposed to realizing that you know, if I did come towards someone, if I did have a relationship, if sex really is meant to be in a loving relationship in marriage for a reason, if there's actually a reason for that, you know, if um, someone who's dying, you know, should be not left alone, but cultivated in fellowship or in relationship. Um, if, uh, if we have fellowship that, you know, we are cultivating in our own walks and lives, we are not meant to be alone. And I think that kind of sanitization that extends to the fact that we don't want to enter into these hard places because we feel we're going to be really alone. And, uh, and sex is a very, very powerful thing, as is intimacy. And again, I think out of fear, we often feel that if we can dissect that and separate it from what it's really the electrical current that's actually really connected to, 
the same thing for death, it's going to hurt less, but it, it doesn't. And I think there's a reason why, you know, T.S. Eliot in his great poem starts the wasteland, you know, has the anesthetized patient, you know, as the symbol of sort of the 20th century, but this kind of not wanting to actually feel and experience our full humanity, um, which is overwhelming and terrifying, but, but we're not made to do it alone. Um, and, and I think that changes everything. And maybe that's the connection I see between the two. I know, uh, so this has been uh, through my mind last couple of years, we, we moved from Ontario to Indiana just after a, a terminal diagnosis in my dad's life. And he lived another two and a half years after we moved. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of time spent on the road going back mm -hmm. to, to see him and enjoy time with him. And by God's grace, a lot of his last uh, two and a half years were, were pretty good, pretty good health. And he worked really hard. My mom worked really hard uh, mm. to have that quality of life. And I, and I stopped to think about that and all that work that they did, much of it that none of us would ever see, like, you know, tending and caring to wounds in the middle of the night and, you know, things that were done in, in secret and, or just in privacy, right? Not in secret, but in, in privacy, because mm -hmm. it's happening at, in, in their own home, is what all that work was a tremendous gift to the rest of us, who, including children and grandchildren, who were able to still have conversation and meals and memories over those two and a half years. And that was a lot of, of private and intimate work that gave tremendous gift to the rest of us. And that was all couched in the time of death, right? It was, it was all under the shadow of death, but it was mm. still glimmers of, of light. And my dad was a man of faith and would have just powerful testimony of times with God and, and testifying to healing in the midst of cancer that God did not heal him of, but, but smaller healings that God gave to him in the midst of that, that my dad would absolutely testify to that would, were part of that quality of life. I think about, I think about that in terms of, uh, you know, the, the connection between the marriage home and how that set up mm -hmm. the kind of death and sustained them through and then passed on life mm. in a real way to another generation. And, uh, you know, mm. you mentioned caring for your mother and your mother's a character in the book and she comes up from, from time to time. And so there's a way that, you know, we kind of mm. start to, the reader would, would, if they have read or will read the book, will, will kind of identify a little bit mm. with, the, with the person you're caring for right now. And I look back to my own life and my, my grandmother had uh, dementia or Alzheimer's disease. We're not, we're not, I don't, I don't know which. And, um, but the way that my, my aunts and my mom and my uncles cared for her um, is part, is part of my story now, right? Is this, is this is how you mm -hmm. provide a dignifying mm -hmm. life to a person who is slowly dying. And, and in many ways is, mm -hmm. is uh, a different person, right? Same, same body, but, but, you know, in many ways, different, different mind yeah. than, than who we, we had. Right, right. And that, that was very, forming in our family that was very forming in, in who our family was going to be mm -hmm. and in some ways because of the person of faith that my grandmother had been and cultivated these relationships with people earlier on in their lives that was just a reciprocal relationship that only made sense as she was in decline mm -hmm. to be faithful and loving and supportive and in many ways that started to form the family and the community that we would have and and so you start to see how these these bonds of fidelity, right? Living out faithful lives uh, just has this, this tremendous power stretched over time. And then not just in the person's lifetime looking back, but 
in their progeny, right? Looking ahead and how, how the lives and yeah. bonds of faith are passed yeah. along uh, to create uh, generations, we pray, of, of faith and, and um, faith and faithful people. So uh, mm-hmm. this is one of the mm-hmm. things that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. reflecting on in your story, your, your, your story in book form really mm-hmm. started to pull some of these things together for me. And I really appreciate that. I want to say thank you for mm-hmm. that. Um, and, any thoughts that you would have mm-hmm. that, that might bounce off that or would reflect back to me? Well, I really appreciate you sharing that because I did start the book with my father's death. I I do think that when our parents die and in particularly our fathers, a great cosmos tilts, you know, it is a, Mm. it's a, it's a big symbol for a reason. And it does throw into relief a lot of the things that we either have taken for granted or we've been trying to think through. Um, I, that's a powerful image of traveling on the road back to your father over and over again with your own life and at a different stage. And um, that kind of going back to him and going back to him. Um, and I'm sorry for your loss. And, and yet I also know that there is tremendous privilege in the fact that God has given us a uh, relationship. You know, he could have created us puppets, right? The old free will argument, but he also could have, you know, created us and kept us all separately and, you know, come from a farm so you know egg containers or whatever else. Mm-hmm. and we're not we're placed in relationship and i think um that's again not to sugarcoat how difficult it might be to care for someone who is in decline but to also show that there's great privilege in being a caregiver oftentimes actually we tend to forget that we're so busy caring for someone and thinking of what we're doing for them we're not realizing how god is shaping us in that act of caring mm-hmm. and I think as a as a, a literature professor, I'm always really aware of words and and um, and the fact that we throw these cliches around. Aaron and love is one of them, and marriage is one of them. These you know these words that can seem sort of empty, or they can kind of take on whatever mood or flavor of the moment. But for God, He's always the same, and uh, we have nothing else other than love. I mean, grace is the ultimate form of love, and. And again, that's not to idealize it in this syrupy way, but you know, marriage again is the only relationship we have that's a covenant. It's the only relationship that we actually make a promise to love someone else. Um, we have no control over eventually who we give birth to or who we adopt, and that's something like we're you know we're promising to be a good parent or we're hoping, but we don't we don't have a covenantal relationship. And so when you're talking about your mother's care, you know, again, it's like Corinthians 13, which we hear it all the time, you know, at weddings. And I cite that in my book, but, you know, love doesn't boast. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of love that happens, um, the love that happens beneath the scenes that does not gain any attention that actually is between your heart and even God's. The person you might be caring for might not even be cognitive or aware that you're loving them or caring for them. Um, It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant because it's ultimately between you and the guy that holds the first commandment. And, um, you know, we're not going to stand at the end of our days and, you know, say, what about him? (laughs) The guy standing next to me, it's going to be your heart. And, you know, one of the greatest proofs I think we have of grace is that no one else knows our thoughts except God. I think that's incredibly gracious of him. If there was a bubble above our heads, we'd be in a lot of trouble, especially those of us who are married. But I think also there's, a way in which that's incredibly powerful and intimate and the template for everything else. And, um, and that doesn't mean there isn't grace extended. If you resent caring for someone or you have anger at God, because the person you love most is dying and you're just trying to make sure they get to eat some breakfast, but there's still all we have. I, I think every act of love is 
is never, ever wasted. And we just don't know the full impact of how it ripples out. And as you said, so beautifully, I think that you reap the benefits in your family of the undergreening that love. Um, and that's, that's all we have. I mean, and actually that all is everything. Mm. I, I was trying to find the quote, but you share a story of a, a really poignant conversation between uh, yourself and a, and a man who had been caring for his wife, especially over a, a slow decline over a number yes. of years and him, and him saying My neighbor, only yeah. one really knows us, right? Only, and you said, you mean your spouse? And he mm -hmm. said, uh, in a way or something like that, right? That, that God is the mm -hmm. only one who really knows the heart and, and lives with us in, the, in a sense that no one else lives with us. And um, as a result, there is no act of love that is lost because they all are, mm -hmm. are means or channels back to God, to whom uh, our lo um, the love of God is the end of all our acts of loves, is the purpose mm -hmm. of all our acts of loves to keep them rightly ordered. Um, I want to shift gears to a final question, and um, sure. I think that you are are uniquely able to help us with this. So uh, it doesn't have to be a long answer, but oh, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> uh, I think you're uniquely poised to help us. So we've got people who listen in. Some of them are preachers. Some of them are people who who love God and they've got a story and they want to share it. And I've been reflecting on this of late that I think preachers need to tell more of their story, but talk less about themselves. And that's kind of this distinction mm -hmm. I want to make between memoir and, and autobiography that, that the, the preacher probably isn't all that interesting. You know, at least if it's me, if I'm the preacher, the preacher isn't all that interesting, but within every preacher, there's a story that God is telling that is remarkably interesting, right? Because God is active and God is an agent. God is working it mm -hmm. together to pull it together. Um, and so I read the book and I'm thinking memoir could be a really powerful tool, both in sharing one's faith, right? Uh, and you said there's a deep connection mm -hmm. between memoir and testimony. Could be a powerful mm -hmm. way to, to proclaim and, and uh, preach God's word. So, uh, you know, with both these, these people in mind, people that want to share their faith, whether from a pulpit or just in the street, I'd love for you to talk to them about uh, how does one start to develop uh, memoir? All right. How do, how do you write a memoir? Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you start to craft your own story in a memoir type fashion? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. Because as I said, I was always trained as an academic. So I had never anticipated writing memoir. It just sort of kept percolating when I was thinking about my conversion story and more and more students asking to share that. And when I ended up sitting in and writing and praying through it and thinking it out, it actually ended up mirroring the Augustinian formula for spiritual autobiography, which you're probably familiar with, with the confessions, which he based on Paul or the Pauline model of you know, identifying your life before your conversion, the events leading up to it, the impact of that holy experience with God, and then the consequences of that on your life. It's sort of a four-part structure. And I actually did it intuitively or archetypally. I think many people do. I, I had never read, for example, something like Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis until years after I wrote my, my um, yeah. own spiritual memoir. So I think it's deeply ingrained in us. And it can be a very powerful tool. And you're right. I think we have to be careful. And when you made the distinction between autobiography and memoir, um, autobiography, we can get really mired sometimes in it being all about us, as opposed to looking and stepping back at the framework of how was God at work in this? Um, how again, and, and actually the ultimate gift, the biggest gift is for the memoirist. Um, you know, you're always trying to think again about relationship, relationship to your readers as well. 
Um, what is your responsibility in relationship to your readers? Uh, but, uh, but ultimately, what's that story? What am I learning in this story about my relationship with God, his goodness in my life, um, his presence in my life, even when things maybe look from a secular point of view, like they're full of tremendous suffering or, or darkness. And they, and they are, that's the, that's the paradox is that they are, but there's also Emmanuel. And, uh, and so it's an, it's a very holy experience for the writer and it becomes, you pray, it becomes a gift for someone else. I mean, I know that I've been really impacted by people's testimonies and memoir mm. um, as, as when they're writing it, especially I think prayerfully. And, uh, and so one of the things that I just recommend um, that I think is really sorely underrated in our, in our culture, but is, is just journaling. Uh, I actually, I actually really recommend cursive, not typing. Um, there's a lot of research that shows there's a connection between the head and the hand in processing your thoughts. It can be quite therapeutic. Uh, so obviously people, I have done a degree in psychology as well. There's a lot of uh, therapeutic benefits to journaling, but also what's really interesting about journaling is it forces you to pay attention. I mentioned the, the Christian writer, Frederick Buechner, you know, who wrote, many very important memoirs himself on God's goodness in his life, Telling Secrets, for instance, which starts with his father's suicide and is a very powerful book. Um, and he, you know, he looks at, when he was asked, what's the important, most important thing you can do as a writer? He said, pay attention. And I think that extends to um, the spiritual discipline of paying attention in our lives as well. And it's a great grace that we are given only one day at a time, you know, because that's all we can manage um, and trying to remember God's with us even in that moment. But, but the gift of retrospect um, to be able to think about what, what else was happening there? What else did I learn? And, and I, I might not have responded perfectly. Often I didn't. Um, and that's even a more powerful uh, lesson or ability to look at the intricacy uh, I mean, I'm always amazed when I look at the Bible, how absolutely intricate it is. Like no one could make this stuff up <laughs> when you sit and read it. It's just amazing. And it's beautiful and how the prophecies unfold and everything else from Genesis to Revelation. But it's the same thing in all of our lives. And it's not like we have to live these huge, epic, exciting lives. Actually, very, very much not. It, it's, it's there for all of us at any time. And um, I mean, my goodness, a, a child that is stillborn is still epic. And um, I mean, all you have to do is ask about the impact of that child on the parent. Uh, so there is immense meaning, so much more than we can ever get to the bottom of. And, uh, and I actually really look forward to heaven in that sense, because I think it will be, um, you know, seeing things less darkly. But, but uh, it's a really beautiful process to pay attention. St. Augustine has this powerful way of, of framing our posture. And so our, our posture to the past is memory, our posture in the present is attending, and our posture to the future is expectation. And, and there's a sense that the eternity is not just this ongoing of time as we understand it, it's this qualitative difference of being caught up in God, who is mm -hmm. the one who's holding our, our time together. And so this expectation mm -hmm. of eternity can be formed by, uh, can be richly formed as we practice remembering and are seeing the act of God, the actions of God, the narrative of God in our, in our own past um, and sorting that together and putting, mm -hmm. and putting that together. And I think that that starts to craft in me a deep faith that 
in the moment when God is stirring one soul to another, and there's a moment to testify, there's a moment to preach, that that act of remembering is able to be articulated in that in the present moment because we're able to attend to that moment and be present in the in the moment, um, and that can spur and inspire right expectation, right expectation of the future. Or yeah, that's a good way to put it. Of the the uh, the eschaton coming towards us, and in fact, as that expectation is kind of like our eyes lifted up, it's like oh, we can, we can see it, right? We can see God's future coming at us because it's mm-hmm. it's future to us, but it's all it's it's all within God and couched within God. So you're you're inspiring me now to preach. So it's good. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, I'm flattered, but you're right. It's an eternal perspective, right? An eternal perspective. The it's. It's the it's the advantage. It's the uh, it's the inheritance of being a citizen in the city of God. Yeah, the inheritance of uh, being a citizen in the city of God. Joining us today has been Dr. Carolyn Weber. Dr. Weber is the author of Sex and the City of God, a memoir of love and longing. It's published by InterVarsity Press. Uh, today we've been talking about uh, sex and memoir and relationships and and catechism and discipleship and all these things and how these are all interrelated. And in many ways, Carolyn, that's what you've done in your book. You've started to put together a number of themes um, told through your own story as uh, coming to uh, meet and know and marry um, somebody. I won't spoil the book, uh, but uh, as you tell the story through. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to remember and mm-hmm. to think and to write and to share your story with us as a way to help teach us and point us to God who's been active in our own lives as well. Thank you for doing that. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your thoughtful questions and for the wonderful conversation. God bless you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. In many ways, you make these conversations possible, and they do not happen without you. So thanks for tuning in. The Wesley Seminary podcast aims to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I hope that this episode has done just that. And maybe you can work at your own memoir. I promise you that if you consider it worth writing, that there will be at least one person who considers it worth reading. So work at your own story and what God has done for you and how God has been involved in the small corners and the wrinkles of your life as you have lived it and God has been holding you together in it. Thanks so much, uh, Carolyn, for joining us. Thank you, Cam, for your production work. We appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Trust you all to uh, have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.